0: The following podcast is brought to you by Rare Book School at the University of Virginia and sponsored by the Pine Tree Foundation of New York. To learn more about our programs and how you can support our school, please
1: visit our website at www.rarebookschool.org. Thank you and enjoy.
0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Michael Spars, and I'm the director of Rare Book School. I'm delighted to welcome you to this, the seventh of our summer series of lectures sponsored by the Pine Tree Foundation of New York, to which I'm very grateful. I'm also grateful and wish to acknowledge the uh, cooperation of the Harrison Institute and the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library uh, for their kind cooperation in helping make this lecture series possible. If I had my English professor hat on, I would be telling you about Stuart Bennett, the novelist, who has written a work of fiction called A Perfect Visit. It's about Regency Bath, but not only that. And Stephen Orgel, who many of you will recognize as one of the most important literary critics in America, wrote about the novel Thusly. Stuart Bennett's remarkable visit to Regency England is compulsive reading a treasure house of observation, perceptiveness, and detail. Admirers of Austen's novels will feel that they have truly come home. So, not bad. (laughs) But we're not going to talk about Stuart Bennett, the novelist. Instead, we could be talking about Stuart Bennett, the bookseller, he tells this beautiful and and, uh, felicitous anecdote about how he got into the trade. He was in law school in London. And then, he says, he went to his first book auction. There was a job lot of 16 volumes of Greek and Latin classics, which had caught my interest. Wilfred Hodgson, famous bookman, opened the bidding in his usual way, saying, A pound for that? It was 1972. In a tone which conveyed genuine doubt that anyone would want to pay so much. I raised my hand, and then the bidding went up and up to ten pounds against me. After a moment of agony, I stuck up my hand and got the lot. For 11 pounds. When I went to pay, Fred Snelling looked down from his desk and said that Quaritch were interested to know who had bought my lot, to which I replied, Who's Quaritch? (laughs) It turned out that they had missed their bid and were specifically interested in a translation of Aeschylus, which was in the lot. For this, they gave me fifteen pounds, leaving me with a four pound profit and fifteen books. The whole experience was like a glimpse of heaven." (laughs) Stewart quit law school and began his career as a cataloger at Sotheby's in New York. In 1976, he became the head of book sales at Christie's in London, and then in 1980, he went into business on his own. He specializes in books printed before 1850. He is not here, however, directly in his capacity as a bookseller, and he has promised that he will not hawk any books today. His motive is scholarly, not commercial. However, a very wise bibliographer who once was in the trade and ended up spending his entire career at the Bodleian Library after his time in the trade, a man named Graham Pollard, said, You know nothing about books until you have examined five books thousand real books well one of the best ways to do that is to be in the trade and Stuart Bennett is here among us today because he has looked at many many more than five thousand 17th and 18th century books and looking at those books he began to realize that many of the orthodoxies about the world of binding were simply contrary to his experience as he saw hundreds and then thousands and thousands of books. His talk today will be controversial. His findings are somewhat contentious. And yet he is here as a scholar, I don't use the word lightly, of the book a bookseller who, because he has seen what he has seen, was prompted to do further investigations into the world of publishing and distribution and binding in the 17th and 18th century. I believe what he has found. I hope you will, too. Stuart Bennett.
1: That is a tough introduction to follow. <laughs> um, in the interest of setting the record straight, which is in fact why I'm here, in another matter, I should I should offer one small correction, which is that I was head of book sales at Christie's in South Kensington, rather than Christie's in St James's. Um, the felicitous part of that was that I saw uh, a lot more books than I would have seen at Christie's in St James's because I was responsible with the help of one cataloger and one porter uh, with producing a 200-lot catalog of books every two weeks. So um, many of these had multiple titles. So I suppose in the course of the first year of doing that, um, I must have seen 15 or 20,000 books. Some of them were, of course, 19th and 20th century. But I did, in fact, I think, cut Graham Pollard's Mustard, and I will be, in fact, referring to Graham Pollard um, a little later in this talk. It's a, pre- a pleasure and a privilege to be here this evening to discuss what I consider to be a still-neglected aspect of the English book trade. And I especially want to say how happy I am to have met Dr. Jan Storm von Leeuwen, whose monumental and definitive work, Dutch Decorated Bookbinding in the 18th Century, is still in search of an English counterpart. Here we go. Trade book binding, by which I mean book bindings executed for wholesale or retail booksellers as opposed to individual book buyers, for the last 80 years was widely considered to be a 19th century invention. If someone bought a book in 17th or 18th century England, this assumption went. they got a stack of unbound sheets. And as the bookbinding historian Miriam Foote put it in her 1993 studies in the history of bookbinding, it was the task of the owner to have them bound. Some of you may have been taught this. To others who find this notion hard to believe, I can only say it will sound a little anticlimactic that the central thesis of this talk, as it was of my book, Trade Bookbinding in the British Isles, published in 2004, is that 300 years ago, if you went into an English bookshop to buy a book, it looked like a book. This evening, I intend to present the argument that the pre-19th century English book trade was more sophisticated than most 20th century scholars were willing to credit. Bookbinders were essential to the operations of this trade, and I'm going to offer a summary of the evidence documenting their role in it. Afterwards, I'm going to try to articulate the basis of the one substantial challenge to my thesis which was published in a review of my book in 2005 and is still echoed on the internet and elsewhere. I'll see what I can do to address this challenge and at the end of this talk, I'm going to introduce a piece of primary evidence I missed the first time around. The bibliographer Michael Sadler collected 19th century novels in publisher's cloth and boards and I think may be to blame for propagating the notion that on the whole early English bookshops did not sell books in bindings. In 1930, he published The Evolution of Publishers' Binding Styles, in which he wrote that, quote, the bookseller-publisher of the decades from 1730 to 1770 issued his books either in loose choirs or stitched or, at most, in a plain paper wrapper. It is difficult to see how the organization of the trade, such as it then was, could make any greater completeness of book issue conceivable, close quote. Sadler's thesis was that the new mechanized binding practices of the 1820s and 1830s made the issue of books in publishers' bindings, mostly cloth bindings, practicable, and that before then, books were sold in sheets and bespoke bound one at a time, according to orders from retail customers. This thesis was adopted and propagated by British bookbinding scholars, who devoted their energy and expertise to distinguishing the structure and the decorative features of these individual bindings, especially the really gorgeous ones. Writers who explored the workings of bookbinders within the larger context of the book trade were largely left behind. I first started talking about this subject several years ago, and at the time, I asked audiences how they or their children would feel if they'd stood in line at the equivalent of an 18th century Barnes & Noble for the midnight release of the latest Harry Potter novel perhaps it might have been Robinson Crusoe at that time, only to be handed a stack of unbound sheets. Now, by unbound sheets, I don't mean something like a modern paperback. I mean what was then called sheets folded and gathered, with each 16 or 24 pages a separate unit requiring cutting in order to get the pages even to open. Or conceivably, you might have been given even a stack of sheets fresh off the press, each one looking something like this, although I hasten to add that this sheet is from the 1820s, but it gives you the drift. These sheets aren't something anyone in his or her right mind would want to try to read. They're something you'd deliver to your local bookbinder before a breeze came up and started blowing them away. And no doubt many Harry Potter purchasers would discover, as Samuel Pepys did, when he bespoke a new binding on a second-hand Italian book in 1668, that one returned to collect the bound book only to discover, as Pepys did, that to my trouble and loss of time, it was not done. I don't think many bookbinders then or now would have stood for this in anything other than exceptional circumstances. So what constituted exceptional circumstances? Pepys and the other surviving chroniclers in England, and they're fewer than one might wish, make clear that books for which individual book buyers might commission special bindings were books either one already owned and wanted rebound or sufficiently expensive that, book, book, that booksellers did not have ready bound copies in stock. This was most frequently the case with high-priced folios which were advertised for sale in sheets or finally, books for which a buyer wanted an especially elegant binding. Exceptional circumstances prompted letters and commentaries, including, of course, in Pepys's case, diary entries. Pepys complained of being kept waiting for a special rebinding and of commissioning another rebinding from a binder he specially admired. Another 17th-century writer complained of the extortionate expense of having a large pulpit Bible specially bound, and others then and later wrote about the nature of elegant bindings to be executed for grand libraries but what about buying ordinary books off the shelf? The problem with the historical record for such things is that buying a book was so seldom an exceptional circumstance. One just went to the shop and got it, then as now, that finding individual commentary on the nature of the ordinary binding in which a book could be purchased is no easy task. Fortunately, dear Pepys once again fills the gap. I'll have more to say about him, when I start to show images of bookbinding examples. But I'm about to give you Peeps' record of a special case of bookbinding, the kind of bookbinding men tend not to talk too much about in public. The book was special because it was French pornography. Peeps normally bought his books in gilt bindings. I'll have more on this later. But here he broke his own rule. The book was what he called, I'm quoting from his diary, that idle, roguish book, which I have bought in plain binding, avoiding the buying of it better bound, because I resolve, as soon as I have read it, to burn it. <laughs> the girls' school was a pioneering work of French pornography, and I'll say no more than that Peeps' diary says he read it straight through in what might discreetly be called a state of high excitement, <laughs> and that he duly burned it the next day. There are a lot of interesting inferences one can make from this diary entry, and I'm not going near any of them. (laughs) What matters to me is that throwaway phrase about the binding, which tells us something utterly essential about the way the book trade worked in this time. Peeps bought the book in plain binding because he planned to burn it. He avoided the buying of it better bound, from which clearly the proper inference is that he could have bought it better bound, that copies were available in the shop on the day Pepys went shopping in more than one binding style. Now, whatever the sophistication of the book trade was in Peeps's time, and the foregoing anecdote suggests something in advance of Michael Sadler's such as it then was, it wasn't any less sophisticated a century later. In 1785, John Stockdale one of London's more prosperous booksellers to the carriage trade, advertised his handsome single-volume works of Shakespeare for sale, quote, in boards, 15 shillings, calf, 17 and 6, calf gilt, 18 shillings, Russia, 19 shillings, vellum, 21 shillings, Morocco extra, extra here meaning extra gilt, 25 shillings, and tortoise shell, 63 shillings. If Pepys could walk into a shop and buy pornography in more than one binding style in 1668, it's hard to imagine that a classy bookseller like Stockdale wouldn't have all his advertised styles available for one-stop shopping. The tortoiseshell binding must have made an especially elegant present. So let's consider for a moment the organization of the book trade in England in the 17th and 18th centuries that enabled this kind of shopping, and let's see what historical evidence there is to support the argument. Booksellers, the name bookseller included what we now call publishers, bought their copy from authors and compilers, commission printers and so forth, just as you'd expect. But many of these booksellers worked in syndicates in which they shared their costs, topped up each other's stock at special rates, and did everything they could to maximize their profits. They did their best to avoid bidding against each other to keep the price of author's copy down. This is what Alexander Pope was rebelling against when he took his own subscriptions for his translation of Homer and the booksellers colluded to keep printers and bookbinders' prices as low as they could. They were more successful with bookbinders than with printers, as can be seen in the low prices shown in a series of price lists agreed between the bookbinders and booksellers, the earliest example of which is dated 1619. The booksellers' system of production and distribution involved their printers delivering the sheets of their books to warehousemen who undertook to get copies of new publications to members of the syndicate, the publishing syndicate, and to other retail booksellers so that they could all supply their customers on the same publication date. These warehousemen collected money and accounted to the syndicate members for the copies they distributed. They also performed the same functions for individual booksellers, and in the 18th century, even for authors when they commissioned their own private printings. Almost all of these warehousemen were bookbinders. So what kind of work did these warehousemen and other binders, both independent and employed by booksellers, do? Here are a few examples. Two entirely undistinguished and undecorated except for simple guilt rule, uh, blind rules in Common Sheep, both of them published by the distinguished literary publisher Henry Herringman, who was also responsible for Shakespeare's portfolio, On the left, not that you'd be able to notice otherwise, on the left is Edmund Waller's poems published by Herringman in 1664, and on the right, Thomas Carew's poems, songs and sonnets of 1670, both small octavos. Conceivably, these were bound in the cheapest possible style by Herringman's own binder, whether he was in-house or more likely, I think, a warehouseman. Here's a more elaborate style um, Plutarch's Lives, five volumes, 1693, in a particularly nice gilt extra calf binding. The 1695 surviving bookbinders' price list, again, the price these were the prices agreed between the bookbinders and the booksellers, specified for this particular set um, a price of five shillings for the five volumes, for the binding and calf. The um, gilt spines would, of course, been have been an extra here's a possible clue about the cost of gilt extra it's also reflected in Stockdale's uh, price list which I read to you a moment ago where calf was one price and calf uh, gilt extra was sixpence more that same sixpence applies here where the same buyer bought (coughs) the two volumes of Dillard Riviere Manley's The New Atlantis Um, volume one On the left, you see he paid four shillings for in gilt extra and the spine also gilt. Volume two, he paid three shillings and sixpence for in sprinkled but not otherwise gilt calf, and the only decoration on the spine is a title label. Um, I also think it's, it's interesting that when we talk about addition binding and the uniformity of it, that this is a binder who bought the two volumes of a same set. They were not issued at the same time, but he clearly didn't seem to mind that volume one was gilt and volume two wasn't. I could trap you here for hours with these kinds of pictures, and I especially regret that time doesn't allow for some Scottish and Irish ones, but I'm going to move on. Here's one last image from the 1760s show you something a little further advanced in time, showing a a set of of the four volumes of the novel Indiana Danby, who was published in two stages, the first two volumes on the left in 1765 and the last two volumes in 1767. The original owner, like the owner of the New Atlantis, seems to have been content or at least reconciled to having the first two volumes in this simple gilt-ruled calf with the goatskin spine labels and the 1767 pair, the conclusion of the novel, in an even cheaper sheep-back plain boards, um, which are, and these two volumes are taller because the binder didn't even go to the expense of trimming the edges. Now, I mentioned a specific binding price for the Plutarch set in the 1695 bookbinder's price list. All the images I've just shown are of calf and sheep styles so common that they were carefully itemized with author and title examples stated in this series of bookbinders price lists. Here's an example. This one's a unique survival from 1669. It has the names of the subscribing binders at the bottom. Many of them were warehousemen. And they're setting forth the agreed prices and delivering them as agreed on by the bookbinders whose names are underwritten and presented to the master wardens and assistants of the worshipful company of stationers, August the 2nd, 1669. The worshipful company of stationers, of course, being the booksellers. And you can see the specificity of it. Uh, I'm not going to go into it simply because it could take up the rest of my allotted time. But this... Sophisticated production and marketing system is surely not one that can be readily dismissed. These warehousemen wouldn't have been bookbinders if they weren't going to deliver bound books. And the beauty of the system is that not only could they de- could not, that they not only could deliver bound books in the usual styles and in larger and smaller quantities as needed, but they could also deliver unbound sheets to retailers who employed their own binders some of whom would do fancier work or whose customers wanted bespoke bindings, by which I mean a binding specially commissioned by a retail book buyer. It appears that some retail booksellers produced a kind of house binding style, perhaps using their own employees. Samuel keeps his diaries to some degree support this theory, as do other records from the period. And what they support is that most books were bought on the spot or delivered ready bound. This slide shows an example of Pepys' normal binding style with the extra gilt on the spines beyond that called for in the basic price lists. Extra gilt, similar to the image that that on the image of the Plutarch set I showed a moment ago. As I said, this extra gilt style binding was standard, certainly available in bookshops off the shelf to anyone prepared to pay a little more money and perhaps that little more money for this kind of thing was sixpence for a normal octavo-sized book. Peeps wanted his shelf to have his shelves to have glitter. And the the glitter was mostly on the spines. When you look at his uh, when you look at the, the books in his library at Maudlin, it's surprising how comparatively few of them have any kind of guilt to match that on the spines, on the covers. The bindings in this picture are worth noting both for their consistency of style. Peeps once recorded that he wanted his library to be, as he put it, of one binding, but also for the fact that none of these bindings exactly match each other, although many came from the same booksellers. The warehousing system meant that many different binders would work on an edition of a book, preparing copies for an agreed publication date, and as a result, many different tools, even those in the most generic patterns, were used in finishing. Each bookseller had to decide how many copies of an edition were likely to sell right away and order from the warehouseman accordingly. Too few copies bound could mean losing custom to a competitor. Too many meant money tied up in the expense of bindings over and above the bookseller's share in the cost of the unsold book's sheets. The warehousing system, of course, kept quantities of books in unbound sheets, but it meant that these sheets could be bound and delivered to retail shops at short notice as the retailers' bound stocks were depleted. Now, as I said, the bookbinder warehouseman could also deliver books in unbound sheets to be specially bound to order. Customers for these special bindings might include, of course, authors and patrons wanting multiple fine bindings for presentation. But it's clear from the surviving records that the retail trade in unbound sheets was comparatively small in England, unlike on the continent, where the evidence shows a much larger proportion of unbound sheets being sold in shops and bespoke binding commissions, sometimes in significant quantities, executed for government and educational institutions, especially for school prizes and the like. In England, larger and more expensive folios were the ones most likely to be advertised for retail sale only in sheets, warning prospective customers that booksellers might not have ready-bound copies in stock. Other, more popular folios, like Sir Walter Raleigh's History of the World, were advertised and sold bound in the same way as smaller, less expensive works. It's also worth noting that in England, by no means all fine bindings, goatskin bindings and others, were individually bespoke by retail customers. As the bookbinding scholar David Pearson recently put it, Booksellers, quote, carried popular devotional bestsellers like Bibles and prayer books ready-bound in a range of styles, knowing that there would always be a steady sale, and this will have applied to other titles where trade could be anticipated. So, you've seen a bookbinder's price list. The price is agreed between the bookbinders and the booksellers, and I've explained the workings of the warehousing system. What other evidence supports the idea that the majority of books during this period in England were sold ready bound. It used to be assumed that the catalogs of English books published in the 18th century, William Bents are a primary example, gave prices for books in sheets because no indication was given whether the prices were for bound or unbound copies. But in fact, every bookseller's advertisement I could find, and there were many of them, where a reference was made to a copy sold bound gave the exact same price as that invents catalogs. Students of binding history were simply making inferences from these catalogs the wrong way around, assuming unbound because Michael Sadler and others said that was the way things had to be. In England, buying a book already bound was, I suggest, as unremarkable as buying a loaf of bread already baked. It was taken for granted. But there was a short period in the history of the English book trade when the world went topsy-turvy And the ways of booksellers and book buyers became a little more exposed to public view. This was in the aftermath of the Great Fire of London in 1666, in which the book trade sustained greater losses than any other group of merchants. After the fire, booksellers took a gamble and began to advertise their books at fixed prices, something not normally done previously. These advertisements gave us a good idea, give us a good idea of which books were normally sold bound. And as I suggested earlier, it's not surprising to discover that it was the smaller, cheaper books that the warehousemen most commonly put their bindings on and supplied to retail booksellers. The booksellers' advertisements confirmed, as I explained a moment ago, that many folios were not offered at a fixed price ready bound, although some of the most popular ones were. So what were the percentages? The advertisements, known from Edward Arbor's later compilation as the term catalogs, show that something on the order of 80% of books sold were ready bound a percentage that turns up in other records throughout the 18th century. The other 20% 20 includes both the more expensive folios and also copies of smaller books sold and delivered unbound for whatever reason. This same percentage, 80% of books sold bound, turns up in the sales records of the Oxford bookseller John Dorn for the year 1520, suggesting that the patterns of English bookselling were well established even before the age of Shakespeare. How far back did the English pattern of ready-bound bookselling go? Well, I'm not sure I would extrapolate quite as far back as this image, which is said to be the earliest known depiction of the book trade in Western Europe, from a John Lydgate manuscript circa 1350. But it seems worth remarking in addition to the fact that the bookseller is a woman, that first, this is an image of an English bookshop, and second, all the books, their manuscripts, of course, are being sold ready-bound. It's also worth noting that in 1496, the bookseller John Rush sued the London printer Richard Pinson over books Rush had expected to receive, as his complaint put it, ready-bound the piece. Was this different to the way the continental book trade worked? I suggested earlier that it was, and I'm going to show a few more images to help demonstrate the point. These images are important because one of them has been regularly shown as proof that the English book trade, like that of Europe, primarily sold unbound books, here shown stored in the in the boxes on the shelves. But this image from Comenius's Orbis Sensualium Pictus is an exact copy of the German engraving that first appeared in the 1658 Frankfurt edition. And it is, I suggest, irrelevant to the workings of the English trade at the time. Why irrelevant? Well, here's an original English woodcut to the 1777. London reprint of Comenius's text clearly showing the standard appearance of a shop of that time no unbound sheets to be found but I hear you about to ask that's more than a century after 1658 things could have changed I wish I had several good 17th century depictions of English bookshops to show you but I don't they were probably like bakeries and being considered too unremarkable to reproduce but here's an image of the interior of Westminster Hall circa 1700 where you can see four separate book stalls offering exclusively ready-bound books and here's a 1640s image of another grander german bookshop the same kind of thing as in the 1658 comenius image but perhaps the best contrast i can offer is this image of, an interior, of the interior of a Viennese bookshop circa 1785 just like Comenius and the 1645 German shop in the extent of the unbound sheets being offered and entirely unlike, remember this is 1785, entirely unlike the English shop of 1777 let me reinforce the point with a few more images A bookseller's trade card, circa 1770. Perhaps a little idealized. (laughs) The exterior of John Hamilton's shop, circa 1790. And last but not least, the interior of James Lackington's shop, the Temple of the Muses, from around the same time. Ready-bound books galore. So with all this evidence of trade bookbinding, how did scholars come to decide that even in England, as this 1998 British Library Guide to Bookbinding has it, quote, until the 19th century, most books were not, sold and were not sold ready bound. From the examples I've shown, you can tell that looking at surviving early English bookbindings one at a time doesn't suggest much in the way of uniformity, except, of course, on seps. Michael Sadler, coming to this period from the uniform cloth styles of the Victorian era, clearly felt that an early English book earlier English book trades selling such disparate bindings had to be a trade that simply wasn't equipped to sell bound books. My thesis, as presented in my book, did its best to prove Sadler wrong. I think it's fair to say that its reception was generally positive. David Pearson, writing in the Times Literary Supplement, called it a bold and welcome step forward in the study of bookbinding history. Michael Ryan, in college and research libraries, referred to it as a compulsively empirical study. <laughs> and and I promise this is the last bit of shameless self-promotion. You'll hear from me this evening. Randy Silverman in the Sharp newsletter called it, quote, a tool for the discerning book connoisseur which fills a long-standing gap in the book-binding literature that in retrospect is as self-evident as a missing front tooth. Now, I'm going to get personal for a moment and introduce a little controversy. I believe there are larger issues involved as well, which have to do with the pitfalls waiting, even in little bibliographical byways like this one. So here goes. The review of my book most often cited is by Nicholas Pickwode in the Journal of the the British Bibliographical Society, the Library. Some of you will know him from his days here at Rare Book School. I referred to this earlier as the one substantial challenge to my thesis, still echoed on the Internet and elsewhere. James Raven's wonderful 2007, The Business of Books, is a prime example, where he suggests that while my study may allow the revision of what he calls the commonly repeated assumption that most buyers before 1800 bought their books unbound, it is, quote, challenged by Nicholas Pickwode in The Library, etc. Mr. Pickwood opens his review by accurately stating my position that bookbinders two or three hundred years ago bought ready-bound books in bookshops rather than taking sheets away. He writes, and I quote, There seems to be plenty of evidence to support his proposition. His difficulty lies sometimes in establishing a reliable interpretation of the evidence and then more importantly in finding actual examples to support his argument, end quote. Seems to be plenty of evidence sets the tone here. Either there's evidence or there isn't. And seems to be, needless to say, suggests there isn't. Mr. Pickwood continues by pointing out that I acknowledge the problems inherent in supporting my argument solely through the visual evidence of the book bindings themselves. But I must also add that he challenges my competence to deal with this kind of evidence. And this challenge persists in, among other places, the description of my book in his course reading list for the Legatus Summer School in Paris this year. Here's his summary on that list. Quote, a very interesting argument in favor of the theory that many more books were sold bound than has previously been thought, but to be treated with some caution when it comes to the description of the bindings. I promise I don't intend to dwell on this, but you should know that Mr. Pickwode's caution is based on three points raised in his review in the library. One has to do with my description of a single binding, another with a conjectural attribution to a binder. On the first, I'm happy to defer to Mr. Pickwode's greater experience of the structure of bindings. As to the second, I'm not going to apologize for a conjecture. But Mr. Pickwood goes on, finally and sweepingly, to declare that I ignorantly produce, quote, a number of typical Cambridge bindings of the decades around 1700 without realizing their common and highly recognizable origin, close quotes. This last was a stunner, because when I wrote my book, I didn't know anybody who still believed that Cambridge panel bindings could be declared on the basis of their external attributes alone, which are what I illustrated. Here's an example. To come from Cambridge. Graham Pollard, to whom Michael referred and who was John Carter's partner in exposing the T.J. Wise forgeries in the 1930s, Pollard also exposed this misconception as long ago as 1956, noting that the Cambridge style was nothing more than a descriptive term favored by Victorian bookbinders. He didn't know why. David Pearson summarizes the prevailing scholarly view on the topic of Cambridge panel bindings in his indispensable book, English Bookbinding Styles 1450 to 1800. Quote, the Cambridge panel style is a peculiarly inappropriate term as it was extensively used in all English binding centers, not just in Cambridge, and there is no evidence to suggest that it originated there. Close quote. Mr. Pickwood's notion that, as he put it, typical Cambridge bindings of the decades around 1700 had a common and highly recognizable origin is a canard, or, to use Webster's definition of the term, a fabricated report, a groundless rumor or belief. Now, back to Mr. Pick- back to what Mr. Pickwell calls my theory that many more books were sold bound than has previously been thought. As you can see, he softened up the review reader with red herrings like Cambridge bindings. But here's his central point, which I quote. The term catalogs for the years 16, 1668 to 73 price 80% of the books listed as bound. And if this proportion were truly sold-bound, as Bennett suggests, then a major revision of received opinion would be necessary. The question is whether the word bound in this context means that the books so described were all to be sold-bound, or whether this is the price that would be demanded if they were bound. If it were true that 80% of books published within this period were sold-bound, then I would have expected that this would have been noticed by now. Close quote. You see the way this argument goes, and you may ask, as I did, why would booksellers advertise their books as bound and at specific prices if that wasn't the way they were selling them? You may even agree with me that alone of all the notices of my book, this was the one which needed a reply, so I gave it a shot. And Mr. Pickwode, and I'm almost done with this, Mr. Pickwode reposted in the same issue of the library as my letter, in part as follows, quote, I have not yet, after working in country house and institutional collections formed in the 17th and 18th centuries for the past 25 years, noticed the same bindings on multiple copies of the same edition before the second half of the 18th century at the earliest, close quotes. If you're still with me, it's probably worth pointing out that nowhere in my argument do I postulate the same binding on multiple copies of the same edition. Quite the contrary. But I can offer, as it happens and I did offer in my book a rather nice example of just such a thing unless of course different colored goatskin doesn't count. These are two copies of the identical edition of Charles Goodall's poems London 1689. Possibly they were bound for the author or for the patron for presentation possibly for bookshop sale Without more evidence, like a contemporary inscription, there's no way to tell. So, you've already heard most of my case, and you can decide for yourselves whether Mr. Picklett has rebutted it. In a nutshell, it's that at least as early as the Restoration, the English book trade worked in a highly sophisticated way to have bound books available for customers ordering from or calling at their shops, with a large number of different binders producing copies of the same edition of books to meet publication and restocking deadlines, there would certainly have been some duplication of binding work. One journeyman using the same tools might produce a dozen or more copies of a book likely to sell well in advance of its publication. But I doubt if there was any real compulsion placed on that journeyman to make each copy identical in the way there would have been for binding a multi-volume set. The few identical copies I've seen have been, have been all over the place, from lovely books like these Goodall poems, to the very simplest bindings where it's appeared there was enough skin to do two or more copies and the lettering pieces use the same font in the same order on labels. What's the likelihood of these simple clones surviving somewhere they could be observed at the same time? And they need to be observed at the same time or else photographed for subsequent comparison because on the whole they're so forgettable and undistinguished. This matter of survival rates is important My own experience with popular literature of the period, as well as my investigation of original uh, investigation of institutional holdings, suggests that a normal survival rate of, say, an edition of a popular 18th-century English novel might be one to two percent of the output. Say, five to ten copies surviving from an edition of 500. Of these five to ten copies, it's not uncommon to see more. No, it's not uncommon to see no more than two or three in well-preserved original bindings. Less than 1%. That being said, let's take a quick look at the kinds of things I think investigators can look for in tracking down evidence of English trade bindings. When I first started seriously researching this topic in the late 1980s, I had high hopes that I would find certain binders' tools on the bindings of certain booksellers' publications and that all the pieces of a bookselling and bookbinding jigsaw puzzle would start neatly to fall into place. Bruce Whiteman at the Clark Library at UCLA and I actually did find searching through their stacks what looked like conceivably a bindery for books by John Dryden. Um, possibly some of them uh, were well, possibly produced at Tonson's own bindery. This, the, this is a, a, a book of, transla- of Dryden's translation of Du Fresnoy. The imprint says W. Rogers, Tonson stocked copies. Tonson had a proprietary interest in Dryden. Note, and it is a very generic little tool, and I subscribed to Dr. Storm von Lewin's approach that one common tool doesn't tell us much, but a number of common tools can. On English books of this period, you're lucky if you can find one common tool that shows any distinguishing features at all. So, this is a very modest suggestion I'm about to make. There on an octavo here appears what appears to be what is the same somewhat generic tool. And here looking rather smaller because this is a this is a folio, it is again down in that corner I hasten to add yet again that I'm hazarding an inference from a single tool and suggesting it might provide a clue that's it dutch and other continental binders produced on the whole higher quality and more distinctive bindings than the english Dr. Storm van Leeuwen's study of 18th century Dutch bindings identified significantly more individual bindaries than I believe an equivalent English study could possibly ever manage. Scholars working with American bindings of this same period, notably Spawn at Bryn Mawr, have, have identified individual American binders using similar techniques. The advantage with American binders, of course, being that there were so far fewer of them. There were far fewer of them. And so their tool idiosyncrasies, even on the simpler tools, are comparatively easy to spot. And I say comparatively because this work is never as easy as you might think. What I mostly found, as all who look at British calf and sheep bindings of this period do, was bindings either so simple and generic like the ones I've been showing that there was no way to tell one binder from another or else I found bindings even on books of the same publishers printed in the same year, were just different. I found a few copies of the same edition of a title in identical bindings, very few, or as with these Drydens, what might be the work of an individual binder or workshop repeated in different books published by the same bookseller or syndicate. I do believe that more research will begin to uncover more patterns. My samples were small, and my matches were few and far between. So let me remind you once more of two things. First, that the surviving number of books in their original bindings from this period is a tiny fraction of those that were printed. And second, that because of the way the trade worked, a syndicated book could have been bound by any one of a number of different warehousemen or by a binder working for a retail bookseller or even for purchasers, including authors and patrons and the occasional institution, bought sheets and commissioned their own bindings. Uniformity of bindings is not central to my thesis. But I still wanted to make some kind of case for in-house bindery, so I decided to try to find a single publisher who did not work with a syndicate. And I found a good one, a family firm active from the 1740s to the 1760s, belonging to two brothers named Francis and John Noble. The Nobles advertised almost all their publications as bound, not only in newspapers and journals, but also, more unusually for the period, in the catalogs they printed at the beginning and end of their books. I went hunting for these bound books, rare as examples were, and as I looked at more and more of them, it became clear to me that the nobles had specific binders working for them. Once again, I had to infer these specific binders from the recurrence of single tools, inferences I would have been reluctant to make without the compelling evidence of contemporary printed records that the nobles worked outside of the bookseller syndicates, even to the point of dispatching their own bound publications directly to private and trade purchasers in the country. The single tools I worked from were the distinctive roles used on the edges of the boards on calf and sheep bindings, books published by the nobles from the 1750s and early 60s. These three slides show examples of three specific edge rolls that turned up most frequently on publications of the noble firm. Blind one over there, gilt one there, gilt one there. These examples obviously are not the same as each other. These are examples of the edge rolls that I found turning up consistently on other bindings. Of, on books published and sold bound by the nobles. Now consider this edge tooling. Sometimes it's the only gilt work on an entire binding. Why? And why do these roles tend to be more distinctive than the generic rules and small tools used on the covers and spines of bindings of this period? Here's a little more speculation. A bookbinder friend, whose work replicates the styles of this period, and there's an example of his work waiting for you to see at the end of this talk, suggested to me the answer might be that these edge rolls identified each individual binder in a workshop and that when the journeymen stacked up their work, the master could easily identify and count the number of volumes each of those journeymen had completed. I hasten to add, I have no historical evidence for this theory, but I do believe that edge rolls may provide useful clues in identifying the work of individual binders and workshops, even if they remain nameless. These three slides show the essential nature of trade bindings of the period, generic styles with no attempt to match one copy of a work to another, but of course each individual two or three volume set bound to match, surely by the same man and no doubt using as far as possible the same skin. But for good or ill, by the end of the 1760s, even the Noble Brothers' bindings became so generic that their distinguishing features became almost impossible to spot. Leather had become so expensive that more and more binders used paper on the covers of their books and ultimately on their spines too, and so these distinguishing edge rolls disappeared. There are some consolations to this this further downturn in binding quality, at least as identifying trade bindings is concerned. At the same time as the Noble's bindings were becoming indistinguishably generic, the children's publisher John Newbery had an inspired idea for an even cheaper binding for small books: spines made of scraps of vellum, stained and with paper spine labels. Nobody disputes that these are not only trade bindings, but are specific to the Newbery firm's own publications. In other words, publishers' bindings. Similarly, we can show from contemporary advertisements that this Bible in miniature from the mid-1770s, published by a Mr. Harris, was issued in this plain calf binding, in which it was sold for a shilling, and also in this pretty goat skin, in which it cost two shillings. This miniature Bible was so popular that it was later taken over by the Newbury Firm, which continued to produce copies in the same binding styles, including the goatskin skin with the sacred emblems. This... Was equally demonstrably a publisher's gift binding and advertised as such. We've now reached the time when even Michael Sadler acknowledged the, the appearance of certain edition bindings. But in fact, this set on Samuel Ward's Modern System of Natural History, published in 1775 and 1776, is every bit as much a Newberry firm edition binding as the vellum. The Newberry firm advertised this set at 18 shillings sewed, one sh- pound one shilling in the vellum manner, and one pound four shillings in calf, with the advertisements making clear that the 12 volumes were bound in six, as here. But by the late 1770s and 1780s, the relentless drive by the mainstream bookselling trade for a cheaper and cheaper product does this sound at all familiar in our own time? began to push leather out of the picture for trade bindings on all but the smallest books. I should add, though, that the more generic, deluxe trade bindings for upmarket buyers became increasingly distinguishable as offerings of specific booksellers. Here's the publisher John Bell's 1788 set of Shakespeare, bound in goatskin at the bookseller's own bindery, then one of the largest in London. But in the mainstream trade, we see a steady loss of what was increasingly expensive leather, Paper sides, what we call quarter and half calf, were virtually unknown in 17th century England, but became increasingly common during the 18th. And by around 1790, bindings of paper covered pasteboard, the original boards so prized on Jane Austen novels, became standard and could, as trade records show, be produced by apprentices, and even by the women who had previously been employed only on sewing frames. As the 18th century turned into the 19th, more of these paper bindings sported printed paper spine labels. And in this form, few would argue that they represent anything other than trade or publishers' bindings. But what changed wasn't the structure or functioning of the book trade. That happened in the 1820s and 30s when the convulsions of the Industrial Revolution ended the role of handbook binding once and for all in the mainstream book trade. The only thing that changed in the course of 1660 to 1800 were the materials of book binding. Books looked like books, and what people bought they could take home and read right away. Now, in closing, I have one short piece of primary evidence that encapsulates what I've tried to present this evening. I missed it when I researched my book and it was sent to me several years ago by my old friend Tucker Respis, who until recently was a bookseller in these parts. It's a translation of a letter by a German visitor to England named Zacharias Conrad von Uffenbach. He visited Oxford in August 1710, and I quote, as it was still early, we went to a bookshop and bought some books, mostly in English, such as are not to be had either in Holland or Germany. Books are so dear in England that the poorest duodecamo volume costs 18 pence or two shillings, over half a Reichsthaler. The best point is that in the bookseller shops here, one buys neatly bound volumes and never sees unbound books. <laughs> And all are in neat calf leather, such as English books are renowned for. Not only can one use the books immediately, but one can also inspect them beforehand in the shops, though for the most part the English are not so minute. Indeed, Herr Karger assured me on his word of honor that he had seen an Englishman purchase a yard or L of books as they stood, because that was the exact amount blank in his bookshelf at home. (laughs) How cool is that? Thank you.